Welcome back to the BAT podcast. I'm here with a very special guest this week, and that's Miles Collier. Miles is a man of many talents, uh, but really one of the biggest supporters of the car collecting hobby today, and someone who's been a huge contributor to all kinds of historic car activities um, and conservation efforts, which I'm excited to hear more about today from him, um, including his most recent endeavor, which is a superb new book called The Archaeological Automobile. So Miles, thank you so much for being here. I know our community will absolutely love to hear uh, your insights today. Well, thank you so much, Howard, for inviting me uh, onto the BAT podcast. It's a pleasure, a pleasure to be there. Fantastic. You know, one thing I really appreciate about you and which I think is important for people to understand is that you have always taken a very thoughtful and really academic approach to understanding uh, historic cars and, you know, contextualizing what collecting and preservation means in, in really interesting ways. Um, so for those that may not know you um, or about your extensive background with, with automobiles, um, it'd be great if you could give us an overview of kind of your involvement with cars and collecting over the years um, and, and kind of what you've been up to. Okay. Um... I'd, I'd uh, kick that off by basically saying it's probably all genetic. Uh, my uh, paternal grandmother was a car enthusiast, literally back in the 1900s. And uh, my father and my uncle Sam were international sports car uh, racers in the pre-World War II era, uh, competing at uh, the Tourist Trophy in, in Ireland, at uh, Le Mans in France, uh, the Alpine Rally. Uh, they ran the Alpine Rally with a V12 Auburn Speedster that went under the uh, rather uh, frightful name of Mephistopheles. And then, of course, they were involved in uh, the, the start of road racing, sports car road racing in the United States under the rubric of the ARCA, the Amer Automobile Racing Club of America. Um, for myself, I was a SCCA racer in the 60s and 70s, and then subsequently a, a vintage racer in the 80s and 90s. And during college, I had a weekend and summer job as a foreign car mechanic, literally screwing on people's Volkswagens. Um, I, uh, I started collecting cars, uh, Porsches, uh, initially in 1976, and uh, I started with a 904 and a Carrera Abarth GTL. So, you know, if you're going to get started in something, you might as well get started with good stuff. But actually, the, 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 the rationale for that was those cars were cheap back then. They really were. And, and so you could actually you know, buy that kind of stuff. And, and then ultimately, I bought the Cunningham collection in 1986, opened uh, the, the museum uh, at Revs in, in Naples in 1990, uh, developed the programming and now for 20 years for an international symposium on collecting historical automobiles and founded Revs, which is the name of our, my not-for-profit automotive endeavor, as an historical automobile research facility in the 2010s. So that's, uh, that's kind of uh, the profile of my autophilia. That's great. You know, you were kind enough to invite me to join you at the, at the 2019 symposium 
um, which was a great experience. Uh, for those who don't know, you, you invite um, probably 60 or 70 of the top collectors in the world to attend uh, uh, what amounts to a three or four day program um, hosted at your museum with a variety of, of really awesome guests, uh, guest speakers, uh, that sort of thing. And to be honest with you, you invited me and I, I uh, was uh, very, uh, my pleasure to accept. And, and the night before I, I really was tossing and turning and could not sleep because I said, what, what in God's name am I going to tell this group of 60 collectors that they don't already know? Um, but at the time, it was a kind of a panel discussion about uh, the changing auction world and industry and, and how kind of the online uh, model uh, was, was uh, shaking things up. And I have to say, it was, it was great. It was really fantastic. And, you, and as I recall, you were a star, Howard. So, uh, you know, just what we expect from the Swig family. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, as it relates to, to this book, uh, The Archaeological Automobile, which, which um, really covers kind of your, in many ways, kind of your lifetime um, of, of achievements and understanding uh, everything it is you do about cars and, and, and restoration and collecting and uh, all sorts of insights that underpin all that stuff. Um, can you give us kind of a quick overview before we really get into it today of kind of what is the, you know, quote unquote, archaeological mindset um, and, and what can readers expect uh, from this book? Okay, well, the, uh, the, the archaeological mindset is uh, basically a, a questing approach when dealing with automobiles, when dealing with the object. It's, it's having an open mind to let the car tell you about itself. It's uh, essentially reading the elements of patina, of wear and use, of, uh, of repairs and modifications and extracting from that the life story of the of the automobile and then being uh, respectful of that life story and trying to keep it alive in whatever future activities you have with that particular automobile you know at, at one point in the book you say that uh, archaeologists do not work on the past they work on what remains of the past uh, which is an interesting take on the whole thing. So, so what are the implications of that when, when we apply it to kind of the world of, of historic cars and restoring them? Well, I think that, that it, it basically means this, whatever exists now in whatever condition is all you have of any old car. Uh, you know, it's the old story that uh, uh, authenticity is a, a fixed quantity in any car that you want to, want to talk about. And we have no ability to increase authenticity, but we certainly have the ability to reduce it. So whatever you do to conserve, restore, or rebuild today is all you can have from the past. And that lump of matter contains all that you can know about that individual automobile. And that automobile is the foundation then of the new of its new restored existence, and that foundation will never change as regards originality, completeness, uh, and its archaeology. So, as I say, you, you got what you got, and you want to be very, very careful uh, about preserving everything that you have. Yeah, very good. And you know, every day on Bring a Trailer, we have these vibrant uh, uh, comment sections on each vehicle, and oftentimes that 
uh, discussion shifts to if it's a project car, how might one go about restoring it? If it's a, yep. a hyper restored car, you know, people want to weigh in on uh, what, what, what went right, what went wrong, why did this person restore it in the first place? If there's a photo of it in 1992 and it looks, it looks pretty good as it sat then. Um, you know, I know that you have, you have a lot of um, thoughts on restoration and, and, you know, the various ways in which one can approach that. Um, I'd love if you could, you know, share your thoughts on, uh, you know, what the, the kind of archaeological restoration consists of and, and how that kind of uh, uh, sits with how other folks might approach uh, uh, such an undertaking. Well, the, the, uh, the archaeological restoration is, uh, is one that sort of exists uh, halfway between, let's say, a conservation uh, project and a, a true restoration in the sense of, of, of what we think of showing up at, at Pebble Beach. It's, it's essentially a, a restoration that tries to respect and celebrate the particularities, the peculiarities, the individuality of an old car that has deteriorated to the point that we actually do need to do some kind of a restoration on it. So we, what we want to do is we don't want to hide the, the damages and the and the repairs from the past, uh, what we want to do is incorporate uh, the evidence of those kinds of events into the restoration itself. And the net result is you, you end up with a car that actually has character. So I guess it, it, one way to, to, uh, to think about this is if, if we do a normal and conventional, what I call an anonymizing restoration, we create an archetype. Okay, the archetype is basically the make and model of that car, uh, reflecting all of its proper uh, elements, the way the factory and the designers intended. That's, that's the archetype. It has no personality. It has no individuality. It doesn't really say anything about its travel through time. What uh, I, I'm advocating is a, a, a restoration that is not archetypal, but is individualistic, that uh, it, it's uh, one that celebrates the fact that that automobile has been around for 10, 40, 100 years, and that it, is, it has seen and done things that are uh, worthy of respect. You know, you mentioned something at the symposium a few years ago, which I actually use every single week in my job at Bring a Trailer when evaluating uh, all the cars that get submitted to us, and that is understanding the difference between preservation and decay. Uh, obviously you are someone that uh, goes to great lengths to preserve you know, as much originality as possible. So yeah, I, I'd love to know kind of uh, if there are a few examples that come to mind of cars in the collection, um, either that you have kept um, as they are, or maybe some where you've done some uh, you know, thoughtful restoration work. You mentioned in your book, your, uh, your Alpha TZ, um, and, and repainting the, the front nose while still keeping all the uh, kind of patina and rock chips and that sort of thing. Um, so anything you can share on that uh, would, would be awesome. Yeah, that, that TZ was a, was a fairly crazed idea because uh, we were literally repainting the nose uh, and preserving every sand chip that it had accumulated over 30 years of vintage racing in that same nose. And that was, uh, that, that was kind of a cute trick. Uh, you know, we just finished a, a Carrera 6 that uh, we restored as of 
its uh, race at the Nürburgring 1000 KMs in uh, 1968. So the car had two years of wear and tear on it at the time that we decided that we would uh, try and create a, a restoration that emulated uh, its configuration. And uh, the, the issue there is to preserve uh, evidence of the car's use that was apparent from photographs from 1968 into its restoration. And as I say, not to create an archetype, which would be Carrera 6 as made by Porsche in 1966. Instead, this is a car that uh, had had a fair amount of water uh, gone under the bridge and our restoration incorporates that. So what did we do? Uh, the car had had a number of off course excursions, which is only normal with a, with a racing car. And the aluminum side pods that uh, with a Carrera 6, those are wet side pods. They actually have uh, fuel in them, had uh, been raked by rocks or gravel or whatever as the car went off. So that these long linear grooves pounded into the bottom of the, of the, uh, the, the side pods. And so during the, the restoration, we didn't remove those. We essentially just painted over them and let them stay. So if you jack the car up today and look underneath, you're going to see that the, the bottom of the car shows uh, off course uh, excursion damage. Uh, the same thing with respect to the kind of panel fits that are apparent. We had excellent photographs of the car from 1968, and they showed uh, some serious misalignments in some of the fiberglass panels. Well, that's part of the character of this automobile. And so we left those uh, be. Uh, now, what will happen is, is what, we, what we've ended up with is, is a car that you can read the restoration with respect to some events from the car's life. But nevertheless, the car still has a fresh coat of paint on it. It's pretty shiny. Uh, and the approach to you know, getting this car archaeologically right is it now needs to go out back to the track and needs to go get run for a bit, needs to get rock chip, needs to get rubber marks on the, on the paint, needs to uh, get star cracks in the fiberglass from rocks, pebbles coming off the, the, the tires. Uh, once that begins to get patinated again, this car is going to be really difficult to tell from the car the way it was in 1968. And that is an archaeological restoration. You know, at, at first glance, some listeners uh, may be thinking that this, you know, kind of archaeological approach um, may be one that only kind of a small amount of, of more wealthy uh, enthusiasts would be able to afford or undertake. Um, so, you know, what words of advice would you give to our community that, you know, care deeply about originality and, and their car's historical significance, uh, but that may not have the, the means or resources to, uh, you know, approach restoration or, or, or maintenance at, at, at this level? Well, first of all, uh, I think that there can be a misapprehension that says that the archaeological approach is, is more costly and can only be done uh, by experts somewhere and, and, and should only be done on, on really valuable cars. Uh, I, the, the archaeological automobile is really any automobile treated in this way, that is in, in which you, you use the archaeological mindset to try and understand the background of that particular car. Uh, and my, my book is about sensitizing the collector 
to important aspects of his car's materiality. And, and that's a mindset that absolutely anybody can bring to any car so that, uh, that you can do an archaeological restoration on your Ford Pinto. You can do it on your Porsche 911. Uh, you can do it on, on any car you, you really want because it's, uh, the important thing is that it's, a, it's an approach uh, that you can do yourself. And I'm hoping that uh, readers will read my book and, and uh, take it out to the garage and, and actually spend time with the book and their car and go through it and begin to identify these uh, archeological points that are the things that make their car the individual that it is. You know, another really interesting part of this whole conversation is, is you know, the, the men and women that actually have the skills to do all this stuff. Um, in, in your book, you, you talk about kind of the, uh, you know, the, the broader loss of, of craftsman skills um, in all sorts of kind of antiquarian techniques um, and, and what that means for the hobby. Um, you know, we, we seem to keep getting closer to a day when, uh, you know, all these cars are still around, but there may only be a handful of people that, you know, have the skills or, or technology or, or access to tools and technology uh, to work on them. Um, you know, this relates to very old cars, right? Building a Kotal gearbox all the way up to, you know, a brand new supercar whose uh, computers uh, may be tough to uh, replace or reboot or remap uh, in the future. You are a supporter of all sorts of programs that, that uh, you know, seek to keep that going. But what are kind of your broader thoughts on, uh, on, uh, on the craft and, and, and where that's going in the next 20, 30 years? Well, you know, I, I, look, I think there's some, some pretty good efforts out there uh, at this point that recognizes that there's a need to develop a, uh, a whole new generation of skilled craftsmen who can deal with these obsolescent and vanishing technologies, uh, the, the, these more esoteric uh, techniques to deal with things like uh, uh, low tension magnetos, uh, coach painting, uh, brush painting cars, uh, and, and things of this nature. I, I would imagine that what we really need to do is not just you know, graduate a, another generation of, uh, of workmen, of craftsmen, but at the same time, what we, what we need is what I call mid-career training. And, and that is to offer you know, short-term focused programs to teach skills in some of these more esoteric areas to accomplished and seasoned and skilled techno technicians who want to uh, expand their, their skill set. And I think this would be one of the fastest and best ways to move the needle is, is literally have uh, opportunities for um, skilled people to come in and, and develop uh, uh, an intensive course uh, for them in uh, a particular area that then they can go apply in the real world. The, the problem is one that's only going to get worse. Uh, but I'm, I'm hopeful that as uh, you know, the value of cars, the historical value of cars uh, gets greater and that uh, as people become you know, more aware of the importance of trying to do things the way they were done, uh, that the, the desire to to preserve these these skills will uh, will grow
That's very interesting. You know, you know the, the Bring a Trailer platform at the end of the day is, is really all about knowledge sharing and discovery um, and, and really connoisseurship, uh, I think, yep. uh, in terms of, uh, you know, understanding uh, really the finer points of, uh, of what makes a car original or what, what its history may have been uh, and understanding, you know, why fine details make such a big difference in, in authenticity, in value, um, and a number of other things. Uh, you talk a lot about um, the difference between collecting um, and connoisseurship in your book. Would you, would you kindly explain kind of uh, uh, that broader theme to our audience and your, your thoughts on that? Well, you know, look, I, I, I think that uh, the way I describe connoisseurship is uh, it would first be in, in opposition to the, to the word hobby, okay? Hobbies are about activities that uh, are for the benefit of the hobbyist. And what a hobbyist does is a hobbyist maximizes his or her pleasure uh, through the use of materials, products, objects, et cetera, et cetera. Connoisseur, on the other hand, is somebody who puts the importance of the object to the fore. In other words, the, the importance of the integrity of the, of the automobile is more important than the personal wishes and desires of, of, the, uh, of the owner. Connoisseurship is about understanding that very small changes in configuration, in condition, in uh, history of a automobile can lead to very large differences in historical value and monetary value uh, in aesthetic value, uh, in, in just the, the, uh, the way an automobile presents. So I, I think a lot of, of this boils down to uh, understanding the nuances of what gives a car uh, its historical character. And then through the archaeological uh, mindset, trying to bring that to the fore. And that to me is the height of connoisseurship. Very good. You know, on, on Bring a Trailer Every Day, you know, the, the kind of uh, uh, headline attention goes to the, uh, you know, the selling uh, amounts that, that all these vehicles bring at auction. Um, but, you know, value really has two meanings. One, of course, is the monetary price, uh, which I think people uh, can, easily, uh, can easily grab their attention. Um, but the second is value as more of a historic, cultural, and personal importance. Um, and this is something I know you have a lot of insights on. Um, in your book, you illustrate uh, with examples like uh, a James Bond Aston Martin DB5 uh, compared to your 1933 MG PA. Uh, we've sold a few PAs on BAT over the years. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe also a Ford Maverick. Ford Maverick was in there. Um, so talk, <laughs> yeah. talk, talk about those examples and, and what you're, you were illustrating as it relates to uh, how people think about value. Well, yeah, first of all, uh, you know, value does not just have to be monetary. There are many, many ways that we value things. We have historic value, we have age value, we have functional value, uh, we have aesthetic value, uh, we have personal value, and so on and so on. Um, and each uh, of those categories can probably be uh, subdivided. Uh, you know, so something like the, you know, the James Bond Goldfinger car uh, has uh, historical value as well as probably 
uh, sentimental value to devotees of the James Bond movies. Uh, you know, and, and that's because the car was an important character in the popular James Bond films. Uh, by contrast, uh, my family's MGPAPB, a 1933 special bodied car, uh, is important to me and, and the other members of my family uh, for its uh, personal value. It's a reminder of my father. It's a reminder of, of our family's heritage in, in uh, motorsport and, and automobiles. And that personal value is, is attributable only uh, to me, irrespective of its historical, cultural, or other values. And it, and it certainly does have some of those values as well. And then by contrast, oh, let's, you know, the, the Ford Maverick that we just talked about, you know, is a, another automobile that would have historical value, certainly, but one with uh, no monetary value. And, and, and so the point is that you can have a car of enormous historical value. I'm not saying that that's a Ford Maverick, but let's say it's a Model T that commands no monetary value. And, uh, you know, and sometimes that's mediated by rarity and sometimes it's not. And, and you know, one thing that's worth thinking about when it comes to rarity is, is that rarity is not a value creator uh, because you know, many uncommon things have no value. Uh, you know, and, and so to, to go back to our example of a Maverick, a wholly original and genuine Ford Maverick would be uh, one of those rare things. I think we would admit that absolutely it's you know, spotless, you know, essentially pristine and, and unused Ford Maverick was a, would be a very rare automobile indeed. Uh, it has no, uh, no value because there's no demand for it. And so for something to be an, an intrinsically desirable uh, is, is the requirement before rarity begins to uh, have any role in supercharging value. So when we talk about, uh, you know, important rare cars, they're cars that are desirable to people that happen to exist in a small number. And therefore, with the, the, the forces of supply and demand at work, they command major prices. But as I say, uh, you know, many, many uh, uh, valuable things, uh, not monetarily valuable, but many valuable things uh, command no monetary value. And uh, that's that's worthy of being aware of. Certainly, certainly. You know, in college, I was actually a history major. And really, at the end of the day, you are a really devoted historian. Um, I've heard you talk in the past about uh, you could argue that the, the automobile uh, may be the most significant uh, item in, in, in modern history and, and how it's impacted so many things. What, what, I know that's a loaded question, but um, would you mind talking about uh, kind of your thoughts on, on the automobile in general and its its impact on on modern history? Well, sure. I mean, the, you know, look, the automobile is is arguably you know one of the most important technologic objects of the uh, of the twentieth century, and you know it, it hasn't shown any signs of going away. So I would say it's still a very important technological object of the twenty first century, and, and I think it is unquestionably one of the most important legacy artifacts uh, of modern material culture that, that basically represents what Western industrialized culture is, is all about. The, the automobile basically transformed uh, the world uh, and it, uh, it did it uh, 
through uh, its sociological effects, its economic effects, uh, the way it changed the landscape, the way it changed uh, the, 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 the roles and mores of society, uh, the way it uh, uh, homogenized uh, our country. Think about uh, uh, the emergence of major chain restaurants, hotels, and other chain purveyors that are the same from Washington State to, uh, to Maine. Uh, these are all things that are largely based on the effects of the automobile. And, and, and certainly if we think through the, the, the most awful geopolitical conflicts of World War I, World War II, uh, the Gulf Wars, so on and so on, these are all uh, conflicts that were caused by the quest for resources to support an industrialized uh, economies in various parts of the world that was built around uh, auto mobility. So, you know, the car is really at the center of, of all of these uh, of amazing transformative changes. And, and again, whether it's minor things or major things, major things like uh, uh, organized labor or uh, universal suffrage, these things were all uh, hugely influenced by, by the automobile. So it's, it's, it's a change agent, the likes of which uh, we have uh, rarely seen. Indeed, with you know, modern technology being what it is, we are facing the advent of some other equally tremendous change agents. And the one virtue that the automobile has is it got here early. It got here 100 years before some of these other change agents. And so the automobile becomes a paradigm. It becomes a model for us to look at and to think about when we assess something like our transformation of the of our world to a, a digital social media world and the effects both uh, positive and negative that that's had or on genetic engineering or on artificial intelligence or on robotics all of these things offer the opportunity as the automobile has to transform our world and like the automobile and like all powerful technologies uh, to not only influence the world for good, but to influence the world for, for evil, for bad, because all bright lights cast dark shadows and the automobile has cast its share of dark shadows in our world. And so will AI and genetic engineering and, and we're seeing it with, uh, with social media. These are, these are not 100% uh, uh, unalloyed benefits. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. I, I, I want to go. I want to go back to your background a little bit. Um, your dad raced at Le Mans in 1939, if I have that right. That's um, correct. There is a wonderful photo in your book um, that I, that I hope that we can post for our for our audience, uh, which is you uh, heading out of a, a dirt paddock um, at an oh, SPA regional race in 1971 in your uh, Porsche Speedster, and it looks like you're. Uh, pulling out onto the track behind a, what is that, a Volvo 142, uh, maybe a Triumph TR3. Um, were you in a and an, Elva, and an Elva Courier. That's right. And, uh, That's right. Yeah, some, some other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm sure that, you know, the, the more gimlet eyed in the audience there will immediately count off all the cars ahead of me and try to figure out where I qualified. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, what the heck? It, it, it was fun times. Very good, and, and uh, I, I know you, you you've hung up your your racing suit and helmet these days. Um, 
and your dad was was somewhat of a, of a gentleman racer. Was he what you would consider a professional driver back then, or that was more of a uh, of a hobby thing for him? Well, the you know the uh, amp, sports car racing back in the early fifties, uh, the late nineteen forties and early nineteen fifties was uh, very much an amateur activity. In fact, if if you're an historian of early SCCA uh, club act activities, you know that there were basically two political forces, if you want to look at it that way. Those that maintain that the SCCA should always be a venue for pure amateur uh, drivers to compete. And then the other group uh, under the leadership of people like Alec Ullman, who maintained that uh, road racing in the United States should allow for professional activities. And my dad was uh, on the professional activities side of things, though he was, uh, you know, an amateur driver. He just read the tea leaves and said that uh, this was a sport that would benefit by bringing professionals in and having professional series and so on. And, uh, you know, indeed, uh, the year that he passed away in 1954, uh, he had made arrangements to acquire and uh, and drive a Grand Prix car in European Grand Prix races. So uh, he was gonna, definitely going to jump in the pool on the deep end of sort of the professional level at you know at that time. I mean, it's fascinating. He ran in that period when when motor racing was was truly a, a dangerous sport and. Uh, you know, people make the reference to, to, to gladiators when you talk about certainly Vanderbilt Cup era, but uh, certainly through the 30s and 40s. Um, so I can only imagine uh, that he was uh, uh, he was an adventure and, and a thrill seeker. Uh, I think you'd have to be. And he was he was, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, at least according to the literature I've read, he was a, he was a very capable driver and uh, could give a, a good account of himself. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the thing about any period is, is you know, we are uh, a products of our time. And so things that we look at in history and say, hey, those people were out of their minds. That was so insanely dangerous. I can't imagine that. Why you do it to, to people in the, in the period that was how it was. And, and, you know, nothing, nothing exceptional about it. Yeah. And, and connecting that to racing today, I, mean, I have to say, Miles, you, as you know, are, are one of the few people left that are still bringing really the uh, the best cars, the, the thoroughbreds of, of, of the period that are, uh, you know, still the best in class in, in vintage racing today out. Uh, oftentimes you bring multiple cars to a single event, uh, Porsche 904s, 906s, your Alpha TZ. Um, you know, what do you think about the fact that there are fewer and fewer people that, that are still campaigning uh, you know, these, these uh, best of best of era type cars today? Well, what, what we're seeing uh, essentially, Howard, is the normal working out of uh, a field of connoisseurship, a field of collectibles in which over time, the, uh, the value, in this case, I'm, I'm talking about monetary value of automobiles uh, of, of a particular type and desirability because of their rarity uh, are becoming so valuable that people are loath to risk them anymore. And the problem is that uh, as I spend a great deal of time in my book commenting, 
is, is that we are subjecting these things to high risk and a high wear and tear environment. And people don't want to do that with cars that command these kinds of values anymore. So we're experiencing a little bit of an automotive Gresham's law in which uh, you know, less valuable cars drive out the more valuable cars. And uh, you know, this, this is a long-term uh, problem. Uh, you know, we, we can certainly argue that uh, you know, the world doesn't necessarily need uh, 10 absolutely perfect lightweight E-types to serve as uh, important legacy artifacts 100 years from now. But at the same time, I think if we race every one of them until we roll them all in a ball, we've also lost something. Now, you know, luckily, uh, what's happening is that uh, people who are inclined towards historic preservation are beginning to acquire the most original cars and maintain them. But then the other side of the coin, uh, you know, flips up and, and that is, but then we don't because these cars are being maintained that may make us feel good, but we don't get to see them run at the at racetracks. And so one of the, my hypotheses is that doesn't it make sense in applications that are high risk, uh, high wear, uh, such as vintage racing, that in fact we create and allow to be created stunt doubles for the racing. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the issue is, wow, wow, doesn't that uh, uh, depreciate the value of, of, of good cars? Well, I, you know, I don't know that it does. I mean, obviously, if you create, uh, you know, 100 examples of something, this is a problem. I think we, we, we would all agree with that with, say, uh, you know, the poster boy for that is our, our uh, Cobra automobiles, which point you can pretty well take it to the bank that if you see one on the road, it's a replica. But uh, my view is if uh, you had an homologation process of some kind that permitted only a limited number of reproduction automobiles that were acknowledged and used as, as reproductions and we, you were allowed to, uh, to, to race them, I don't know that anything bad would happen. In fact, I think that uh, the quality of motor racing would go up. I think the, feed, the, the, the audience would enjoy it more. And my, my uh, example of that would basically be the Goodwood events and where, uh, while no one really likes to talk about it, uh, there are a large number of replica cars in those fields and nobody knows and nobody really cares. Um, I, I do think that uh, the, the uh, you know, I've, I've actually been writing some pieces on this. I'm, I'm still trying to formulate my thinking in more detail uh, about, uh, you know, what, what we do to make sure that, you know, important and significant cars uh, are still recognized for what they are, important original, you know, works of art and of human effort that, that need to be saved and, and revered over the, over the years and not diluted by a huge flow of, of replicas. Nevertheless, there is a place for replicas in this, in this field. And again, I, I think a lot of that comes from the idea of uh, the archaeological mindset. You know, the great original cars, if, if they haven't been turned into archetypes by some improvident uh, anonymizing restoration, still show signs of their use and age and everything about them. 
And uh, we can see that that's, that's tangible and perceptible. And it makes those cars completely different from uh, what a modern replica would look like. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. <clears throat> Before we wrap up, I, I wanna touch a little bit on, on, on your collection. Um, people may or may not know that, that uh, Revs in the Collier collection is, is uh, you know, probably one of, if not the best collection in the world. I, I wouldn't just be saying that just because I'm sitting uh, talking to you. Um, you're not sparing my blushes, that's for sure. Yeah. You mentioned that in 1986, you, you bought the Briggs Cunningham collection. Uh -huh. um, is, are a meaningful amount of cars um, in the collection uh, from Briggs uh, today? Give us kind of an overview uh, of, of something. Of something yeah, something less than half of the cars in the collection are from the Briggs Cunningham collection. I believe uh, 50 cars, we have 115 cars in the collection. 50 of them are Briggs Cunningham cars. And uh, uh, you know, one of the, the obligations that I, I felt uh, once I had acquired Briggs's collection was that any cars I added to the collection had to stand up against Briggs's cars. And, and you know, some of the greatest cars in our collection, some of the greatest cars in the world, absolutes, you know, full stop, are cars from the Briggs Cunningham collection. And so when I've uh, added cars in, in various uh, uh, types and styles, um, I, I have felt the obligation to make sure that that uh, these cars also equal what uh, what Briggs had. So. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to acquire a W154 Mercedes-Benz Grand Prix car. Uh, you know, and and uh, that, I think that holds up very nicely to uh, Briggs' Grand Prix car collection. And, uh, you know, we have a, a completely unrestored and original 917K uh, Martini factory car. Uh, you know, and, and, and so, uh, you know, part of the challenge and, the, and the, the enjoyment of this collection has been maintaining its quality as it grows. No, it, it's a fascinating uh, place to visit. I would recommend, certainly if you're in the state of Florida, you ought to get down to Naples. And, and even if you're coming from farther afield, it is, it is truly an experience. Um, is, is it open to the public? Is it by appointment or, or tell us about that? The collection is open three days a week, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And uh, you can make a reservation by going on the web and going to our website, Revs Institute, and a couple of clicks, and you have a reservation to come visit us. We're open from 10 to 4 on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays uh, all year round. Terrific. We, we, we will link to that. Um, lastly, uh, you know, I really cannot re recommend this book, The Archaeological Automobile, enough, uh, mostly because there is really nothing else like this out there. I, I appreciate, Miles, that you, uh, you think about all this stuff in, in super innovative and, and truly unique ways. Uh, the word unique is, is oft overused, but in this case, I think very appropriate. Um, is, is this book, uh, are you making many copies? If, if our listeners want to get their hands on it, how would they do that? Uh, this, the, the, the book is, is readily available. You can, you can buy it on Amazon without any problem, uh, or you can buy it on Collier Auto Media. Just go to uh, Collier Auto Media website and click on that and you can, uh, you buy the, the book there, or uh, the, the book should be in various uh, museum bookstores as well as uh, neighborhood bookstores around the country. Very good. And I'll just say for, for, for people listening, if you like reading about people's comments on VAT on various auction listings in the comments section, Miles' book takes that to about the 
uh, and times it by about 100. Um, uh, so if you're into, uh, you know, the knowledge sharing and discovery that we see every day on Bring a Trailer, I, I promise you, um, you will sit down with this book uh, over a, a glass of uh, wine or a cup of coffee and, and, and really thoroughly enjoy it. So Miles, thank you so much. Um, really appreciate you being here. I, I'm one of your biggest fans um, and I hope that our paths will cross again soon. I look forward to it indeed, Howard. We'll see you out at the racetrack this summer, I hope.